0: Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us online at adlw.org. I'm pleased uh, to have with me the Reverend Matthew Kennedy, uh, Rector of Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Matt, great to have you with us. Thanks for being with us today.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Matt, just tell us a little about you um, and your family and and how long you've been in Binghamton so that those that don't know you will get a sense of who you are. I have been here
1: in Binghamton for 17 years, ever since I graduated seminary at Virginia Theological Seminary. We came up here uh, to Binghamton. I have six kids. Me and my wife, Anne, have six kids. Um, And let's see. uh, Yeah, 17 years, six kids. That's about it. (laughs)
0: That leads for a very busy lifestyle yeah. and uh, I have been in your home and you and Anne do the most sterling job of uh, of raising your family, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Um, I've got you here to talk about a very important um, matter uh, and I want to introduce it by uh, telling people um, about the Bible, approximately 168,000 Bibles are sold or given to others in the United States every day, 168,000. The Gideons International distributed over 50 million Bibles worldwide last year. Uh, That's more than 100 Bibles a minute. Uh, More than 66,000 people are using a Bible app at any given second. Three people share a Bible verse on their social media network uh, every second. Uh, That's pretty impressive. Um, But in spite of the fact that Bible use uh, remains high in the United States, it's no exaggeration, although it it seems to me it's no exaggeration to say that North American evangelicalism is facing a profound loss of confidence in the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, I've invited Matt Kennedy to talk to me about this. I believe it's at crisis proportions. Only one in three Bible owners know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when you ask most people uh, uh, who delivered the Sermon on the Mount, most people will say Billy Graham. Uh, the fact is that over the last 100 years, there has been one wave after another wave of attack on the Bible. It's inspiration, inspiration. It's inerrancy, uh, the uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the trickle-down effect has seeped even into our own beloved Anglican communion. And Matt and I are going to uh, talk about these things. Uh, Matt, um, you know that in our own diocese, um, the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, uh, the clergy are um, are required to take what we call an oath of conformity. We haven't always had this oath. We've introduced it into the canons of the diocese uh, over the past years. Uh, The bishop also makes uh, the same oath. Here, let me read it to you. Do you affirm your promise so to preach the inerrant word of God and administer the sacraments of the new covenant so that the reconciling death of Christ may be proclaimed and received. The clergy answer, I do. The bishop says that he will do the same. So in the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, we believe, we choose to believe that the Living Word of God is inerrant. Talk to us a little bit about that, Matt. What what What's a definition of inerrancy?
1: I think one of the best definitions comes from the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is put out Back in 1978, when when the evangelical world was debating the question of the reliability and the truthfulness of the Bible, and I'll just read you a section of it, which I think is succinct, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, that it is than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives, so that is, it's not just inerrant with regard to matters of faith and doctrine, but everything upon which it touches, it, it, it does not err.
0: Okay. Now, we we would we would trust. I assume that all the church um, believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, But listen to this definition of inerrancy published on the official website of the Episcopal Church here in the United States. They define inerrancy as, and I quote, the belief that the Bible contains no errors, whether theological, moral, historical, or scientific. Sophisticated holders of this theory, however, stress that the biblical manuscripts, as originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek were inerrant, but those that are presently but not those that are presently available. Some more uh, conservative scholars are reluctant to speak of inerrancy, but choose to speak of biblical infallibility. They mean that the Bible is completely infallible in what it teaches about God and God's will for human salvation, but not necessarily in all its historical or scientific statements. Biblical inerrancy and infallibility are not accepted by the Episcopal Church, end of quote. So, Matt Kennedy, um, there's a lot to unpack in that statement. Where are they right— and 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 where are they in error?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think they're right in in the definition of inerrancy, as you know, the Bible contains no errors, whether theological, moral, historical, or scientific. That's absolutely correct. Uh, they're right in that we locate inerrancy in the autographs, that is, the the original writings of the the apostles and the prophets, not in the translations or in the uh, the, the, the various manuscripts that have come down to us um, over the course of uh, over the course of time. But they're, but they're wrong to say, I think, that we have no access to or the that the, the autographs are not available. Uh, the actual parchments, no, we don't have those. They no longer remain. But the way the original texts were copied and preserved and transmitted has given us a vast sea of very early manuscript copies from the originals, so many that, that we know with far more certainty than with any other ancient document, what those original writings said. We can reconstruct with great confidence the original writings of the apostles and the prophets. So it's not correct to say we don't have any access to them at all. We, we do. And, and they're right, I guess, to make some distinction between, or that some do make a distinction between what's called infallibility and inerrancy. Infallibility tends to refer to uh, doctrine and moral teaching. And inerrancy traditionally rec- re- refers more to the incidentals of history and, and and science. And there are some who who claim to be orthodox, who say, well, the Bible is infallible. That is, whenever it talks about faith and morals, it says true things, always true things. But whenever it speaks of, say, historical realities that it errs." there are some who, who take that Take that position i think it's it's a wrong position because christianity unlike say islam is is not an ahistorical faith doctrine for us isn't dropped from the sky god god reveals himself in history in specific times and places and so the, the, the narratives of his self-revelation in history down to the very details can't be torn from our doctrine of God. So you can't make that distinction cleanly, like like this this paragraph wants to do. Um, and they're also right, I think, finally that yes, uh, the, the Episcopal Church rejects both infallibility and inerrancy. That's clear. <laughs> I think all these things.
0: So, well, so so so, Matt, um, why is this a dividing issue? Uh, is is this an issue that we can compromise on? Uh, are, are we able to set this aside for the sake of fellowship? I mean, that's that's the popular mantra in some circles today. Let's let's sit aside these differences about the Bible and let's let's just be united together in fellowship. Let's break bread together at the holy table. Uh, let's enjoy each other's company. Let's be nice because that's what Anglicans try and be. Um, Matt, Matt Kennedy, is this is this is it is it is there room for compromise?
1: I mean, everything you just said is is what my former bishop in the Episcopal Church said to me when I met with him after he had cast the vote to affirm same-sex relationships and and uh, and and people who are in same-sex relationships being ordained to to the office of bishop. And I, I remember sitting down with him and I I showed him. I knew, I know he'd read them before, but I showed him Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And I said, look, this is what the Bible says about sexual activity, and it forbids homosexual sexual activity. And I'll never forget it, because he looked me in the eye and said, well, the Jesus I know in my heart would not have inspired those words. I, it's the, what I, the Jesus I know is different than the the Christ... Of the scriptures, and of course, what that does is it opens it opens you up. If you take that that way of thinking, it opens you up to reshape, to reimagine God in your own image, in the image of your preferences, or in the image of culture. You cease to be a a, a servant who receives God's word, and you you then become a master who shapes God's nature according to your own desires.
0: So, would you say then, Matt, that uh the desire to hold table fellowship together which is which is a noble desire, the desire to um be in good and godly relationship with each other uh, which is a good and godly desire uh is in fact um uh, good in itself, but there is something more important than that type of unity, and it's unity in the Scriptures, unity in the Word of God. Can you unpack that sort of thing for us? Because as you've said, the cry is, "Let's just be united. Let's let, let's be together."
1: A- absolutely. The the when you read the New Testament, unity is always grounded in Christ, in in the living God who's made Himself known to us in in the living word who is who is Christ himself. And and if if since he is a, a an actual living person, since Christ is a living person, he has the authority and the right to define himself. And when we human beings refuse to receive what he has revealed as true about him, then we cease to actually worship him. So so that we can be friends with those who reject what God reveals about himself in Jesus Christ and the scriptures. We can, we can be nice and, and kind and all of that, and that's, that's not a problem. But when it comes to actually worship and joining an ecclesial fellowship with them, well, they, they worship one God, a God that they have created, and we worship another. So there's no there's – no, we worship the real one. There's, a, there's, there's no real fellowship to be had there.
0: Yes, Matt uh, Kennedy is my guest on this episode of Living Through the Word. Matt, of course, one of the great uh, gifts to us as Anglicans is the doctrine that's expressed for us in the 39 Articles of Religion. Uh, Let me read Article 6 of the Sufficiency of Holy Scriptures for Salvation. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, Nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of of the faith or thought requisite or necessary for salvation. And the article goes on to list uh, the books of the Bible. There's not much wriggle room there, Matt, uh, to introduce uh, additional teaching, other doctrine, or or other teachings uh, from various places. That's pretty tight, correct?
1: Right. I mean, implicit in that is that the scripture, because it is God's word, is always going to be true. And therefore is always going to be the measure of everything that the church does and teaches. And if we add our own laws to the, to the Bible. They 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 cannot and they should not bind the conscience of any person. And if we take away from the laws of of the scriptures or the teachings of, of the scriptures, we all, we steal away from God's own self-revelation. So either side of that of that line, we we fall into grievous error. And uh, and and again implicit in that whole in that article is this idea that, well, if it is God's word, then necessarily it is true and everything has to be measured against it and by it.
0: You've been 17 years as the rector of a wonderful, faithful Anglican congregation. Uh, You've been involved in conversation with Anglicans and others right around the world, uh, particularly through your presence online and your willingness to challenge these revisionist doctrines. Uh, We're really grateful uh, for your courage in doing that. Um, Matt, uh, do you think that Christians, Anglicans and others, have a high enough view of the Bible as the Word of God. Well, I think,
1: of course, it depends on where you are. If you're in our diocese, of course, you do. But if, <laughs> and of course, if you're in Good
0: Shepherd, you have yeah, a you know a wonderfully elevated view of the Bible.
1: <laughs> yes, but I, I mean, you said earlier, I guess, in the introduction to this uh, to this podcast, that we are surrounded by water, but still we're we're dying of thirst. The, there there is this there is a sense in which I think. The average Christian, whether they be Anglican or not, doesn't see the Bible as sufficient for life and for uh, the, the, the maturity of the faith. And so we don't, we don't always look to the scriptures first as our source of, of food and drink and, and life. We look to other things. Uh, you know, one, of the mo- my, one of my pet peeves is when churches have time to set aside small group studies And instead of saying, "Why don't we study a book of the Bible?" they'll say they'll study some other book. You know, maybe a book by some popular Christian author, which is Mm -hmm. in its. I mean, the the books might not be bad, but the Scripture that's that's where life is. That's where that's where God. That's how God breathes uh, health into the soul. And why would you want to spend time studying some other person's book when you could study the? The book that has in it it, and contains in it the word, very words of God. That, yes, I think there's a there's a sense in our in our churches and in our in our world that uh, these are, yes, of course, if you're in an Orthodox context, God's word. But what real use is it?
0: Matt, I'm thinking of that a wonderful passage uh, right at the very end of the New Testament, just before the uh, book of Revelation, the revelation of St. John, uh, in verse 3, in that single chapter, uh, epistle uh, of Jude, we read these words, Beloved, while eagerly appearing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And what you just said is underscored by and grounded by this very verse, Jude verse 3, uh, the faith that was once for all. Matt, you've probably heard me say on multiple occasions, this doesn't mean once upon a time. It's once and for all. It's the same once that was used to describe the death of Jesus on the cross. It happened once for all. Uh, for the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. So that there, there is a faith that is entrusted to the church once and for all time. And that's surely why this why this all matters, the the unique truth about Jesus, which we discover in the Bible, wasn't thought up by the church. It was entrusted or delivered to the saints by the apostles from God Himself once and for all. And does that not suggest that we're not at liberty to change it, we're not at liberty to go beyond it, to get in behind it, to make it say something that it's never meant to say. It's once and for all. Absolutely, you know. I think one one of the modern ways
1: that critics assault the scriptures is to say, "Well, you know, Paul was a man of his time, or, or, or Peter was a man of his time, or the, the, these 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 people were writing uh, out of the uh, the, uh, the the cultural context, and now we have a different cultural context." and we have more knowledge about biology and science and so and so we can't let their words rule our our decisions but but that is, that is to of course deny that the that the the scriptures the, the prophecies the, the words of the apostles are not just the words of prophets and apostles but the words that god has given to the prophets and apostles and the apostles and that he's He's carried them along as they're writing so that they don't have any error. And God being eternal, who sees at one time the events in the garden and the events that will take place at his second coming, he's, he's not bound by, by cultural primitive preferences. He's able to, to speak through human authors in ways that will be applicable throughout all time and in all
0: places. At the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, we're here to equip and edify you in your walk with Christ. We are working hard to develop new resources like this podcast, and we trust that you have found this ministry to be a blessing. Uh, To find out more about the ongoing ministry of the diocese, including details about our upcoming 2020 Missions Conference and Synod, Uh, about the uh, Bible study tour to Israel over uh, July 2020 with uh, my wife Brenda and me, visit us online at adlw.org. And as always, share this podcast with your friends and subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. Matt, I uh, had the opportunity recently to uh, reflect on the message Jesus gave to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. And it helped remind me of some of the things that you've been speaking about uh, in uh, this episode uh, to Sardis, a, a church that on the outside looked very successful. Um, certainly uh, had a reputation of of some description. Jesus says, "Remember then what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent." And it would it would. Suggest to me, what is it then, as we ask the question, that that Christians, that Sardis, that the church today has received and heard? It's received the word of God from God himself. Uh, Paul wrote to the Romans, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So Jesus says to this church, which has really stepped outside of its great foundation, remember what you've received remember what you've heard. And I don't know about you, Matt, but uh, I have the privilege of uh, uh, driving around a lot of the United States in my travels as bishop across the diocese. And sometimes I I come across signs outside of churches that say, uh, revival tonight at 7 p.m. And um, I'm always tempted to go in to to discover what that revival uh, would look like, or the name of the church might be Christian Revival Center. Um, um but it's it's not revival, something that's old, um, God doing again what He's done before, that He keeps on doing, and surely what He's doing is bringing to us the Word of God that's once for all been entrusted um, to us. So why does this inerrancy, therefore, matter so much? Talk to us about that.
1: I mean, we've already we've already said that the the Word of God or Scripture is is God's god's self-disclosure he he reveals himself to us of course he's revealed himself to us in in his son in the flesh but his son christ himself pointed to the to the word the scriptures as as the the truth as the is the way that god discloses himself in words um, to his people in fact i mean I'm reminded we were talking about this revival and and remembering what has been given Jesus' discussion with the Sadducees when they when they were challenging uh, when they were they were challenging him about the resurrection and he he pointed them back to words that were written oh 2400 year I'm sorry 1400 years before they were around <laughs> to words are written by Moses an
0: uh, Exodus there doesn't it back to something old
1: yeah, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is the God of the living, not the dead. Jesus bases his correction of the Sadducees about the resurrection on words that were written 1,400 years before them, and says these words were written to you, not not just to generations ago, but to you. They they are they were true then, and they're true now because they were they were revealed by the true and living God.
0: So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the early church recognized that God had spoken through the apostles. The canon of scripture was closed from that uh, day on down to the very present day. And every claim to truth uh, is measured, therefore, by the standard of the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints. And that, that's why, surely, uh, the ultimate responsibility for the gospel lies with God, which is why it's such a terrible thing to change it. And no doubt you would agree with me, Matt, that almost every contemporary problem in the church today comes about when people try to add or subtract from the apostolic gospel. Um, we see that about sexuality. You mentioned it earlier. What what bearing does this inerrancy have on the current viewpoints of sexuality and identity?
1: Well, once you discard with the idea that, that with the truth that God speaks through the human authors of of the scriptures and that some might be true and some might be false well what that does is that sets the human reader or readers in the position of of judge and we then determine what parts of scripture are true or false and and then we have to look for some other measure and what tends to happen is culture or preference becomes the measure and um in this case it's become, you know, culture. Culture has become more and more, uh, more and more uh, widely diverse with regard to how people are expressing themselves sexually. And if scripture does not is not the measure for our sexual lives, then, well, I mean, I grew up in the Episcopal Church and I went to an Episcopal seminary, and I had some I had professors tell me, uh, in in Virginia Theological Theological Seminary, that God unfolds Himself in the unfolding of culture. That goes back to Hegel. So, so now whatever happens, I guess, whatever, whatever the consensus of the people around you in your cultural context might be, that is, that is right sexually and in any other way. That's dangerous. I, there's a, there's a, I don't want to draw the, I don't want to draw this parallel too closely because I know there's a lot of differences, but there's, there's a lot of similarity between that and the way some of the Protestant German churches were thinking uh, in the 30s uh, uh, the, because they had long ago discarded scripture as the rule. The The unfolding of God's self in German culture for them was definitive. And so a lot of them did not resist the Nazi rise to power. And I think I think we're seeing a similar, not exactly the same, but a similar and analogous uh, situation here as churches that don't hold Scripture to be inerrant and infallible and and authoritative are giving themselves over to the cultural current.
0: Matt, people say this about science as well, don't they? They say, come on, you can't really take the Bible seriously with the intellectual uh, and scientific advances of uh, the mind and the 21st century. Um, So uh, scientific discoveries um, – do they supersede scripture well of course I what's interesting is that there does seem to be this
1: sense out there that that science is always right we believe whatever the scientists tell us and and if you just study the history of science you see that over the course of various decades what what is the what is the studied results of the unanimous, uh, results of scientific study on a certain subject changes you know, dramatically sometimes over the course of decades. Uh, I guess a, a good example is the is the idea of the of the universe being a, 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 a eternal entity, a, a steady state theory, I think it was. And then when uh, when Hubble looked through his telescope and saw the redshift, he realized, oh wait, no wait, the, the universe is expanding, which means it must have had a beginning. Uh, and you know, decades of science were it was overturned by with just one look through through a telescope. So I, I don't think that science is the place to rest your security uh, when it comes to when it comes to truth. Scripture is always true and 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 that that includes with regard when it comes to what it says about science and the way the world works and the way in the way nature works. We got to be careful in some senses and that, in that you know there are times where the Bible describes the way the world is from say, so the human perspective, uh, anthropomorphic ways of speech. Uh, and sometimes skeptics latch onto that and attack the scriptures through that. So, uh, you know, if the Bible says the sun rises, the skeptic will say, oh, see, the the the, the Bible is teaching a flat earth, which is which is ridiculous because no one calls their weather station when uh, the news station, the newscaster station, when the meteorologist says the sun will rise at 730, we all know what he means. Same thing with scripture. Um, but in, in general, I mean, the, the Bible is given to us by the God who made all things. So there's not going to be an error uh, with regard to how the things that he made are described. And where we see science telling us there is an error, we can be sure that there, the science is it's wrong.
0: Um, Matt, critics of scripture will search for alleged uh, errors or contradictions in the Bible. Um, You just gave one with regards to the sun rising and how we might deal with that. Um, Do you have another example of um, any such error or contradiction so alleged? And if so, what is it? And how might we respond? I'm I'm preaching through John's gospel right now. And if you've read
1: John's gospel, I know you have, but I'm, I guess, talking to the people who are listening to us. If people have read John's gospel, they'll see that Jesus cleanses the temple in chapter two. Of John's gospel, the very beginning of his ministry. But if you read the synoptics, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that that happens at, during the last week of his of his ministry. And critics make a, a, a lot of hay about this. They say, well, when did it happen? Was it uh, is John right? Did it happen at the beginning? Or are the synoptics right? Did it happen at the end? This is clearly a, a contradiction. And the problem, of course, is that critics will read differences as if they're, they're contradictions and there are two ways to answer that particular question and i find that if you have a, a a view of the scriptures which say which which tells you that this is god's word you're going to work hard to find a, a way that those kinds of questions can be answered and you end up actually with a much deeper and richer understanding of god and the scriptures themselves so one way people have answered that is by by pointing out that ancient ancient writers didn't feel obligated to record, record things in the order in which they took place. And so they would sometimes arrange material topically. And so some of those who say that would say, well, John was probably arranging his, his material in a topical way, bringing the cleansing of the temple to the beginning of his, of his gospel to display Jesus's character and identity at the very beginning. Kind of like if you're writing a book on John F. Kennedy, you might write about his assassination in the first chapter, even though that happens at the end of his life. Um, and that's that's a that's a possibility, but I tend to think that the best way to, to work that out is to say, yes, well, Jesus cleansed the temple twice, and the reason I think that is, is it's fascinating. when you go back, if you know your Bible well, go back to Leviticus, you know, fourteen, and and there's a lot of stuff in Leviticus that just seems why why is this here? Well, there's this one section of Leviticus fourteen where the 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 author Moses describes what to do when you find. Uh, mold or, in, or some kind of uh, infection in the walls of the house. What do you do? Well, you call the priest. The priest comes, he inspects it. He looks at it. Before he gets there, you have to clean everything out of the house. You just cleanse it. He looks at the house. He sees the the, the mold, and, he, and then he says, okay, let's wait for seven days, and I'll come back after seven days, and I'll check it out. He comes back after seven days, and if it's there, if it's still there, if it's grown, then the house is destroyed. And think about the Gospels. Uh, if, if we harmonize these four gospel accounts, Jesus, the great high priest, at the very beginning of his ministry enters into the temple, cleanses it out because it's become corrupt. And he gives it three years and he comes back after three years and it's still corrupt. And what does he say? Well, not one stone to be left upon another. And that's, and that's what happens. But you miss that richness and that depth. If you have thrown over inerrancy and you're just, and, and you take an apparent difference and you, you, you consider it a contradiction and you you lose the richness and the depth that, that you gain if you take the Bible to be what it is, which is God's word.
0: My guest on this episode of Living Through the Word has been the Reverend Matthew Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Matt, uh from time to time people come up to you as a Christian. Uh this has probably happened to you. Uh people say to you, words to the effect, can we believe the Bible? Is it true? Can we can we believe and receive it as God's Word? Uh how would you answer that?
1: I, I would I would say that the that the Bible is there are there are external objective evidences that will show the the, the person who comes to this question with an open and reasonable mind that yes, this is God's word. The Bible is true. This is not just a matter of taping, taking taking a blind leap into a dark cavern, hoping that there's something underneath there to, to support us. This is there there is there's all the all the evidence in the world to show and point to the truthfulness of of scripture and that every word is inspired and 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 given and and given by God. But then I think also for the believer, for the one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ, those evidences are helpful and are good and they're wonderful. But the Holy Spirit within us, I I think just when I when I read the scripture and I know that when other Christians read the scripture, there's there's just no there's an implicit assurance. This is my Lord speaking to me. The, 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 The sheep here hear the voice of the shepherd and and the scriptures are the voice of the shepherd. And so if I would say, if you want to know whether, whether the Bible is true, yes, you know, look at the evidences, but I would say, first of all, uh, Jesus loves you. God sent his son, Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Will you trust in him and give your life over to him? And if you will, the Holy Spirit will enter into you, and I and I and I, I know that when that happens, you will have no doubt whatsoever that the scriptures are his word.
0: We've been talking on this episode of Living Through the Word about the incredible gift of God's Word, the Bible. We believe the Bible contains all things that are necessary for salvation, so that whatsoever is not read in it or be proved by it is not required that it should be believed as an article of the faith. Uh, If you've got questions about anything that you've heard on this episode of Living Through the Word, if you want to discover more about the Bible, learn about Jesus, wonder how you can pray to him, send us an email at questions at adlw.org, and someone will be ready to uh, respond to you. Uh, Matt, great having you on the program, the Reverend Matthew Kennedy. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, how do they do that?
1: They can go to www.bingamtongoodshepherd.org, that's our website, or they can uh, you know, can always find me on Facebook, Matt Kennedy. <laughs>
0: You can find you on Facebook. We can also find Matt Kennedy if you look through uh, ADLW.org as well. Uh, I'm Julian Dobbs. Uh, This has been Living Through the Word. I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace.